And now, Geico's saving stories. Russell Burton closed his laptop, having just switched his car insurance to Geico. He didn't think much of it until... Savings were everywhere. My pockets, uh, wallet, bank accounts. It was like the savings were following me. Following, indeed. All because of an innocent 15 minutes on Geico.com. I feel like I'm never alone. Geico. Spend 15 minutes and 15% or more in savings could be following you.
the reason I wanted to do it is because, as I've seen this as a Christian, uh, creates there's a lot of confusion in the church. And without oversimplifying it, obviously, you know, God's not the author of confusion. And it really is, it really is one of these issues where there's a clear, there's a clear line of separation, there's a clear line of demarcation, whether you believe miracles are for today, whether you believe uh, miraculous gifts exist today or not. You really you have to take a position one one way or the other to be logical. And you could always say, "Well, I'm not logical yet today. Today, I believe there are spiritual, you know, there are miraculous gifts. Tomorrow, I don't know. It's that that's not uh, that lack of consistency would obviously cause a lot of problems. But I feel uh, I feel strongly about this. I listened to a few different debates, and uh, one in particular, I won't mention the participants, but the brother who took the view that I take and that Andrew takes. That uh, the you know, miracles have ceased, and spiritual gifts that are miraculous in nature have ceased. We'll get into that. That's really the heart of the show. But the brother who debated someone who believed that, who had the right position, pretty much got trounced by the uh, the brother who took the position that you know all spiritual gifts, all miracles are for today, just like it was, just like it was in the early church age. It's, uh, yeah, I've wanted to do this show because of that to really discuss some of the issues. I think there's some people that debate this, and yeah, Andrew's in the trenches. Andrew's out there preaching, teaching, doing evangelism, training in evangelism. But a lot of people that are involved in vocational ministry, uh, there's, I think there's some arguments that they miss that are fairly, they're very persuasive and uh, relatively easy to make, to persuade people that oh, you know, we should not expect that miracles uh, are for today. We shouldn't expect miraculous sign gifts uh, exist for today. If you look at this you know, very, very briefly, you know, how, uh, why, how this become an issue, uh, really what, what happened in, in the church that this became an issue. Okay. Now, a lot could be said about church history. But in general, the modern Pentecostal movement began in the early 20th century. There were two series of events that occurred in the United States. One, the so-called Azusa Street Revival. I say so-called, I don't think it was a revival in Los Angeles. And there was a series of events in Topeka, Kansas. And that was the very early 20th century, and that was the beginning of the modern Pentecostal movement. Again, there's different things to be said about church history. I think you know, church history would support a cessationist point of view, ultimately, it's what the Bible states, it's what the Bible teaches. But we do have the witness as far as you know that what what did people believe? You know, we have we have creeds, we have confessions, so we have systematic theology throughout throughout a good part of the church. You know, we have the Reformed tradition. So it really began in the early 20th century in the states, and from the inception of the modern Pentecostal movement, heresy was involved. Heresy was involved. Pentecostals from day one, that's what they initially called themselves. They were divided on the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. To this day, you have so-called oneness Pentecostals that deny the Trinity, deny the triunity of God, the fact that God is one, yet there is, in a sense, three persons, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, yet God is one. They deny the triunity of God, or if you want the theological jargon, they deny Trinitarian monotheism. And you could say, uh, historically, you put them in the category of modalism, more or less, you know, they have God as different modes, but they're not a Trinity. That's an Orthodox doctrine, and 
again, if a seven-year-old trusts Christ, they probably may not be able to articulate immediately um, what the Bible says about the Trinitarian nature of God's unity. They probably can't do that. But if you know, you're preaching and teaching and you hold on to this, you, den- you actively deny the Trinity, I would say you, know, you are lost. That's outside the mounds of orthodoxy. So from the very inception of the modern Pentecostal movement, you had that element, and then you had people in the Assemblies of God, the Assemblies of God eventually. They took the orthodox position, and yeah, that denomination grew. That grew more. So then later on, you had, you had uh, in the latter part of the 20th century, you had really a multi-denominational, interdenominational movement that was charismatics. You had the charismatics pop up, in dead Protestant Orthodox Church, in dead Protestant churches, non-Orthodox churches, you had the Charismatics pop up in the Roman Catholic Church. To this day, you have the Roman Catholic Charismatic movement. So it's very interesting. You have brethren, uh, professing believers that want to strongly push uh, this pragmatic argument, the experiential argument, saying because they are doing it because they have what they claim evidence, which we'll look at in the show today. Uh, their evidence shows, hey. This is legitimate, and that is a horrible, horrible argument because you have you have spiritual liberal Protestants that embrace the charismatic movement. You have Roman Catholics, Orthodox Roman Catholics, that embrace the charismatic movement. You have you have Mormons that speak in tongues. <laughs> Almost every world religion has some type of tongue speakers. So that's a horrible argument, but that's used. And over the last, I'd say, roughly you know, 25 years. You've had a twist on uh, the, the traditional Pentecostal or charismatic move, charismatic uh, uh, beliefs, and Wayne Grudem took a belief, and they've kind of coined the phrase. I don't know if he came up with it called continuationalism. He'd say, oh, "I'm not a cessationist." In other words, if you use the word cessation, or you say you're a cessationist, you're saying at one point, you know, the miracles and, and the miraculous sign gift ceased. So then. I believe, yeah, it, it's an attempt to appear more intellectual, more responsible, uh, intellectually, to put a little more intellectual uh, responsibility behind the movement and change it. And they say, well, I'm continuationalist. So they're saying, okay, they're basically saying spiritual gifts continue. And again, it's <laughs> different arguments can be used, but it comes down to the fact is what people are calling tongues, is what people are calling prophecy, is that biblical or is it not? What what are they doing? No one denies that people have experiences. No one denies that people have had experiences throughout the history of the church. No one denies that. The the <laughs> the parameter, the judge is always you know how you judge it is always comes down to scripture. That's where it always comes down to. And I believe Andrew Andrew is with us. I'm going to bring him on now. Brother Andrew, are you there? Hey, Rocco. How are you? Good. Good. I hope, uh, uh, hope everyone could hear you well there. I know your phone is better than mine. But uh, I'd just like to give a little bit, a brief overview of your ministry uh, and where to find your ministry and what you're up to now. Sure. Uh, you can find more about the ministry at strivingforeternity.org. Um, been up to trying to get my next book out. Uh, it's coming. It's a little bit delayed, but uh, I have a book that's coming out uh, that next week. We should get them, and it's called "What Do We Believe?" It's a systematic theology of Christian faith, uh, kind of a companion to my previous book, which was "What Do They Believe?" and that was a systematic theology of 
different world religions. So this is one I'll go into detail, defining the Christian faith. Excellent. And what's your website again? Striving for Eternity. Dot org. Right. And and how long have you been uh, plugging away with this evangelism, teaching evangelism, discipleship? I tell you, how, how long have you been doing this? How long have I been evangelizing? For as long as I've been a Christian. <laughs> hey, hey, amen. Hey, amen. I wish I wish everyone could say that. I wish I could say that. Uh. You, you know, <laughs> and this will this will this will date myself a little bit. Uh, but back to years when when you were in New Jersey. Uh, the years you want to block out, I understand. But uh, <laughs> look, all, all all good things come out of New Jersey. It's the, it's the people that stay that are usually the problem. <laughs> I will not comment on that. <laughs> yeah, no, the thing is, is uh, I, I was looking back some some years ago and realized that I've been doing open air evangelism since the since the early 1990s. And the only way I knew that is uh, a pastor that you and I both know at the church that I was in uh, had me write a philosophy of ministry for what I was doing down on the boardwalks when I would stand up and just proclaim the gospel in the open air. And uh, so it's the earliest I could date is uh, 1993, 94. Uh, the earliest I could date how long I've been uh, at least doing the open air. Uh, but I've been doing Probably since college, which I'm going to say is just a few years ago. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. When, when did you, when did you in a formal way organize striving for eternity? Well, it, it actually happened over over time. I mean, really, it started over about ten years ago when I really just was trying to organize a conference for an evangelism conference here in New Jersey that we do every July and. We we started it really just for that conference initially. No no plans of anything further. Uh, but when I stepped down as being a pastor, I started being asked to speak everywhere, and it became convenient to since we had a a five hundred one c three, it made sense just to use that to speak through, and then it became more of a equipping ministry where we were uh, <clears throat> you know we we do more teaching online. We have a whole uh, a whole course schedule where you could do how to interpret the Bible, hermeneutics, we have 80 classes on, on systematic theology, classes on discipleship, world religion, so it's kind of grown over the years. That's, uh, that, that, that's great. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to bring you on for, uh, for the broadcast tonight, and so if you heard the intro, you know, I've, I've just been concerned as I've heard some debates that the people that take the right position don't always fare well, too well. <laughs> and, and if, let me, well, let me ask you this, me, and I'm sure. going to ask you this because I might have some inside information sure. that would, would put you at ease. Sure. The debate you're referring to, is it the Sam Waldron Matt Slick debate? I, I would, and I, I would rather not, I would rather not say. <laughs> well, let, let me give you some insight. Let me give you some insight. So, the 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 thing I mean, look, I, I watched that debate. I think Sam had the the right position, but did a horrible job. But there's a reason he did a horrible job. He prepared for the wrong topic. Um, they originally had agreed on a topic in that debate, and then they changed it 
and Sam didn't prepare for the new topic. So Sam got up first and, and made the argument, and it was totally not doing with the, the topic of the debate. And so I think it, it, it's by by that debate because he – he he just wasn't as prepared as I think he would have been uh, had he he remembered that the topic changed and th- and that th- that came you know from from Matt Slick himself he he had since, told me that since uh, you brought it up what, what was what was the topic you prepared and what did they actually debate I I forget now the what the original topic was and what the one they I, I think I think the topic they ended up doing was um, do charismatic gifts continue today. Or, um, and it, it was I think that was the, the final topic But um, But it, it was something where I remember when I watched that I was confused with the original opening Because I was like Not really addressing the topic And I remember talking to Matt about it And he, he, he actually said he, he felt bad for Sam Because it, it was clear to him He, he prepared for the wrong debate And uh, I, think, I think maybe they should do, a different, do another one um, there's there is one where Matt Slick and I, and Matt and I do not so much a debate but a discussion. Uh, it's a little bit more lighthearted. We we like to take jabs at one another. Uh, we like to really show and display that people can can feel feel very strongly about positions, uh, and and yet not do the name calling. He and I will do a debate this this Sunday night on church membership. And and more of a discussion, really, not not so much a debate. It's not like a, we're not going to do a formal debate, but uh, but we disagree on things. And uh, there's no, I, I'm not opposed to disagreement. It's disagreement when you start getting the name calling and, and poor behavior that as Christians we we shouldn't be displaying, especially to people we're going to say are brothers in Christ. No, I I, I would agree that the issue becomes it becomes more. Uh, more, I would say divisive, I think it's divisive, because more divisive and more uh, explosive in the context of the same ministry or the same local church. So it's one thing for you and Matt or someone else, you had to have a friendly discussion, but it'd be a different thing. And I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't want to uh, misrepresent you. I don't think you could probably plant a church with Matt because even <laughs> though he's a brother, you know, th- yeah. those, those yeah. differences, I mean, those differences are that serious. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, you know, there's, I think, on this specific topic, okay, I think there is a reason why it's so hard to have someone that you can discuss these things with and not go down the road where it turns bad quickly. And a lot of it's because whether, whether people want to admit it or not, they like it or not, the charismatic movement that has influenced Christianity and other religions um, – is not something that is based well it's it's not going to be based solely on intellectual arguments okay it's for some people it's it's solely on emotional arguments but if there are the more scholarly type someone that is more intellectual like Matt um it's going it, to there is going to be some component of intellectual and emotional and it is something that you see people get uh, when you start saying these things cease, um, but, you know, I'll give you a, for instance, Jordan Hall uh, and Ante Pavlik had done a debate on the, on this yeah. topic. Yeah, I saw that one. And, and you know, it was a thing where it, it really kind of bothered me 
with Auntie's speech and his his personal attacking of Jordan Hall. Now, he was warned in between before before I mean both of them agreed that they wouldn't do name calling. Um, Ante actually told me, and I was I moderated it, so I was I was there. I remember. Uh, but yeah. Ante had told me directly. He said, "I'm glad we're doing this. This is such an important thing." He said, "If I'm right and Jordan is wrong, then he is limiting Christians of of their of using their the full gifts of the Spirit." He said, "But if Jordan's right." and I'm wrong, then what I am doing is of the devil. Now, the fact that he went in the debate understanding that and then started to attack Jordan for Jordan denying the gifts and, and then saying, basically implying that Jordan's calling him of the devil, um, he understood that ahead of time. But I think, I think what it was was he was getting very emotional um, and and – I played a, a clip of him on, on my podcast, The Rap Report. You have a section we do logical fallacies called Name That Fallacy. And, and I, I played the, the, one of the opening clips of Ante because he does a, a great example in there um, be, of a fallacy. That basically what he does is he, he states up front that you have to first believe in the gifts to be able to interpret the Bible to see that the gifts are there. Right? Yeah. So uh, you're, of course you're that's, that's fallacious. Yeah. yeah, you're trying to prove you're, you you have to first accept the very thing you you're trying to prove. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that that he ends up doing. Um it's yeah. by the way it's called the begging the question of fallacy for folks who yeah. When I saw, I mean I wasn't there, I wasn't there with you, so I I saw, I mean he did get emotional and that could happen. With non-charismatic, I mean, if you or I were debating, you know, if we were debating forensic justification, you could say that's the gospel. Okay, so that's a bad example. So that's, you know, that's that's, yeah, that's well, heaven or no, hell. I'll, I'll but yeah, pe- if, pe- if, people if do get emotional. I think when you get pressed, you know, regards to your theological position, when you're put particularly, and obviously no enforcement to the debate JD, but when you're put in a position, and you kind of get exposed. A lot of people do just then react emotional. I mean, it's just it's that uh, unfortunately happens. One thing you said about experience really stuck with me. The church that I was baptized in, New Life Gospel Church in Piscataway, New Jersey, they had come out of the Assemblies of God that had happened before I was there, providentially, and it was really neat because uh, you know the pastor had spoken in tongues and stuff. So whenever anyone would ever use yeah, the experiential argument. He basically say, "Yeah, I did, and I, it was it was completely wrong. It was it was it was fake. It was phony." So, it, it is awesome that you know those people are out there. I mean, and again, you don't have to embrace something to. to I mean, it is a logical fallacy, but no, he but, would. You know, but, Pastor I mean, Johnson can, would love to say that to, to Pentecostals and Charismatics when they would use the argument. It's like, "Yeah, I did. I did for years, and it was wrong." <laughs> yeah, I I do the same thing, and what people do is they because I came out of that movement as well, and people will just say, well, you weren't really speaking in tongues. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's like, okay, well, then how do you know? I mean, how do you determine? Right. And this is the thing, and you brought up in your introduction, I, I did a podcast with Justin Peters. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah, anyone yeah. That, great uh, stuff. Dealt with yeah, anything. Be, yeah, beautiful, yeah, beautiful teaching. Dealt, yeah. Yeah, any, anything with the with discernment in, in the area of the hopeful prosperity gospel and, and charismatic movement, he's, he's got the, he's got the, the, the research. 
Um, but we did a podcast on the Catholic Charismatics. Because what a lot of people don't realize is that the Catholic Church is really being uh, energized now. Because a bunch of people are coming back to the Catholic Church. Why? Because of these charismatic gifts, these speaking in tongues, and the same things that you see in the Protestant circles, you're seeing in the Catholic Church. And he brings up that you even see it in Hinduism. You see the same oh, yeah. type of behavior Every major world religion, like I said, uh, has it. There's a wonderful little, uh, wonderful little statement anyone can get online if you search, if you go... If you use a startpage.com, I don't use the big guy, startpage.com or duckduckgo, duckduckgo.com. Look for Grace Theological Seminary, the Charismatic Movement, and they document very well. You know, every every major world religion has tongue speakers. <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing that's so interesting, you brought it up. You know, before Azusa Street, who was it that was speaking in tongue, and which group was, was known for that? It wasn't the Christians. And people no. go, oh, but look at the reformers. There's some quotes from John Knox. Yeah, they they saw this in the scripture, and they would say that God could do these things. But you don't see it normative in any way in Christianity. No. No. It's no God, but you do see it in Mormonism, a yeah. cult that is so far from Christianity. It's yeah. not funny. No, the, the experiential argument, I mean – that's a very powerful argument I think you know, Christian cessationist has to use because uh, if you're going to go out there and you're going to say, well, because we're doing it, you know, this, is, this is really self-authenticating. It's kind of what you implied. They're almost, they're almost giving their experiences autopistic authority like scripture. And uh, John MacArthur had that when he wrote the book, The Charismatics, which he rewrote, rewrote as Charismatic Chaos. There was a Pentecostal who literally wrote in the beginning of, of their Bible, you know, forget the Bible, I've had an experience. <laughs> you could say that's extreme, but ultimately that's what it comes down to. But if you're going to take, if you're going to park yourself there, I mean, that's a horrible place to be theologically and spiritually. You have to admit the truth. It's like, okay, if you're saying your experience alone authenticates it as, re- as true, how do you explain, you know, the Muslims, the Mormons, the devout Roman Catholics are doing the same thing? And that alone... exactly. That alone should make any any Pentecostal or Charismatic that respects God's word seriously examine what they're doing. Uh, so the, the answer the answer they, they give to that is mm-hmm. Scripture. They'll say, but see, it 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 agrees with Scripture with where the Mormon and the the Muslim and the Hindu doesn't. But the argument, you know, if you're going to say that the the evidence of baptism of the Spirit is speaking in tongues, then you have to then conclude that these others who are teaching a false gospel are baptized in the Spirit. Now, right, I mean, right, whole... right, right. If you're deceived, again, you could it's, – it's a lot of areas. Yeah, I won't give a ridiculous illustration, but if, if you're going to kind of park there, if you're going to really, really believe that, to say, okay, well, you know, those tongues, you know, the Catholic Charismatics, that's fake tongues. You know, the Mormons are fake tongues, and mine, mine are real, Okay. It's the same manifestation of words. You're talking about babbling. We're talking about babbling. We're talking about gibberish. But if you want to park yourself there, it goes down to what you implied too. When you look at, and again, we're going to get into the scriptures, but the testimony of church history, if you really want to believe that then, you're basically saying, where was, I mean, it becomes almost cultic then, because where was the true church then before the early 20th century? 
who who who's doing it? I mean, it just it becomes it becomes beyond absurd to say, oh well, no, now 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 it's it's recovered. Or it's like, okay, either you believe all the gifts were always in operation, or they weren't. It's really that simple. Yeah. And and again, we've got the and, testimony of church history that I touched on. You know, where do you see this? Where do you see this in in creeds? Where do you see this in confessions? It, it's just it, it's not there. It's not there. Uh, to me. You just you get back to scripture. Uh, even within the context of the Bible, miracles weren't normative. You know, we you like to use that word normative. They weren't occurring all the time. Most miracles occurred during the times of Moses and Joshua, and then Elijah and Elisha, and then the very beginning of the church age. So the idea, when you look at yeah, the what well, you know, well over a thousand years of scriptures written, miracles were few and far in between. So. Right then and there, even within the context of what occurs in Scripture, miracles weren't normative. So, <laughs> you very again, you become, it becomes very hard pressed to say, well, it should have been. And to me, another argument that, that you know, a lot of people do touch on this is that what's passed off today as miraculous doesn't is not what the Bible would say is miraculous. There's no way tongues. Yeah. I think tongues are very clearly you can prove it was human language. There's no evidence that I've seen. None whatsoever. Anyone is speaking in in human, you know, discernible languages. Same thing with the healings. Biblical healings are truly miraculous. Someone was blind, then they could see. Someone's lame from birth, then they could walk. You don't see those healings today. So it really does debase scripture because when you attempt to say, okay, well, what I'm doing today is what's in the Bible. You're not only misinterpreting the Bible, but you're really you're really taking away from what is legitimately miraculous. Well, it's, it's what you always say. You know, these things, the, all these miracles, always there's always the stories, and they're always happening in some third world country where there's yeah. no yeah. video camera, right? I mean, I yeah. people tell me that they have the gift <laughs> of healing, and I say, cool. What, let, why do do you hate your neighbor? And they go, what do you mean? Do I hate my neighbor? Well, are there hospitals near you? I mean, if you have the biblical gift of healing, then you should be able to walk in that hospital and in the name of Christ heal everybody like the disciples did, like Christ did. Yeah. You know, you should be able to do all that. There should be a hospital in your area. At least least some. At least some. Yeah. It's funny when you touch on that because I've heard that. I've heard that argument too for years as far as it will always happen in a country they try and – they try and incorporate this theology as far as faith. They say, well, it's not happening in the West because either lack of faith is happening where God has to yeah. manifest himself in a way. It's happening you know, somewhere deep in India or something. And it's like, okay, now, today, in t- 2017, when we've got these you know, people have these silly cell phones with cameras and all, there's still no evidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the greatest example of the evidence, and in, in, the, in the podcast I did on the RAF report with Justin Peters, I actually linked a video of a guy in Africa. He's being slain in the spirit. He's on the ground. He's rolling around. The, the pastor's, you know, praying over him and speaking in tongues and all this, and all of a sudden the guy's cell phone rings. And he stops shaking, and he answers his phone, and he's yelling at his mother because he's in church. And then he puts the phone back in his pocket and starts jumping around again. It, it, sounds it, like a performance. Not, exactly, exactly. You know, why is it that none of them speak a known language? You know, the, language, the yeah. Holman Christian Standard Bible, 
had this word translated properly into languages, and they got in trouble. People were upset with them, and so they ended up changing it back to tongues because the word tongues is more confusing. The word that we would use today is languages. Now, why is it that they they say everyone speaks an angelic language? Everyone, I've yet to meet anybody in all my years, anybody that spoke anything other than an angelic language. Where do they get it from? First Corinthians thirteen one. Let me read that. No, no, no. I I I, I hear it's 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 crazy because in Acts two and Pentecost. We know it was languages, yet they park on well, one verse, which obviously we they take out of context. But, Go ahead. but, but it's, Go really, ahead. it's important yeah. to look at the verse. It says, if, yeah. if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What's the focus? The focus is on love. The focus is that people are making tongues more of an issue than the love, and he's trying to say love is more important, and he's, and he's being sarcastic. How do I know? That when he says, if I speak of the tongues of men and of angels, that he's being sarcastic because of verse 2. Verse 2 reads this, and if I have a prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. Now, if somebody had all knowledge, understood all mysteries, who would we call that person? God, because he's omniscient. Yeah. You see, this is clear sarcasm. He's 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 going he's being so sarcastic and exaggerating. If I speak of the languages of men, even of angels, that doesn't say that there is an angelic language. Yeah. Maybe there is, but he's he's being sarcastic, and they take something that's used as sarcasm and, and uh, exaggeration. And then take that and make it into a teaching. And the reason everyone speaks an angelic language is because he can't prove it. No, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think, I think it is, it is hyperbole. But even if it wasn't, you make an excellent point in context. He says the tongues of men and of angels. So then it becomes even more difficult to say, well, Paul said this. Yet I'm just part. I just want to choose the angelic tongues. And again, we go back to we use the lexical argument, tongues or languages. Again, I go back to Acts two. It was undeniably human languages. <laughs> it, was, it was human yeah. languages. So then, because they then, the languages. Yep, yep. We knew we knew the people groups. I didn't count them up tonight. I forget how many, fourteen or nineteen different groups. So yeah, it's 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 just. And then we only have we got in addition to Pentecost. We've got, we could look at them later. We've got two other instances of tongues in Acts and 1 Corinthians, and it's done. So, when a lot of people, and we'll get into the argument, and people say, you know, What's the evidence? How could you say, you know, what does the Bible say? How can you prove that they ceased? I, my, my answer would be, How can you prove that they continue? When the testimony of Scripture is that clear, that you only have two instances in Acts after the inception of what I believe is the church age in Acts 2. And then First Corinthians, where is this normative? Even the New Testament, it's it's, it's not there. It's, it's just yeah. not there. Yeah, and here's the thing that happens. And I and you know I have two papers on our website. One that deals with First Corinthians twelve, thirteen, and fourteen in one paper in context to work through it. Uh, one that focuses just on chapter thirteen, eight, and following, where it says that tongues will cease on their own. Something's going to come, this, this thing, this teleos, in some translations, perfect. Uh, 
that comes. And when that comes, these things cease on their own. Well, what is the teleos? What is this, this thing that comes? Uh, I make the argument that I think the only, the only good argument that you can make from that is the canon of Scripture. And when the canon of Scripture was closed, there was no more need for revelation because it was closed. So you didn't need these revelatory gifts like speaking in foreign languages to, to, to communicate the, you know, the, the revelation. You didn't need the wisdom. You didn't need the knowledge. These things, you don't need them anymore and because you have the Scripture. Uh, and what you end up seeing in that passage, inadvertently, people will have to break the rules of interpretation to interpret this. How do they do that? They will, they will look at this and say, they'll, most people want to avoid verse 11, where it says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Why? Because that's clearly an illustration. The word teleos, as you know, Rocco, has three different possible translations, right? Perfect, mature, complete. It's the idea not of something that's absolutely perfect. So when people say it's got to be Christ because he's the only thing that's perfect, you're, you're not following good hermeneutics, good principles of interpretation, because you're not following what this word actually means. It's not speaking of a person, and it's something that comes to completion or comes to perfection. So the idea of being a child to an adult is maturity. He then says in verse 12, I see in a mirror dimly. Now, the problem we have is that we don't understand the mirrors of that day. We think of the mirrors that we see today where when we look in a mirror in, in our homes, we're looking face to face. We're looking clearly, but they didn't have polished metal. So looking in a mirror which was vague and, and not clear, it was dim. And he says looking in a mirror dimly compared to face to face. Again, it's the completion, the maturity, the perfection. And people will say, well, face-to-face, that only, well, that only references and always references a personal encounter. But that's not true. There's plenty of times we see in Scripture that face-to-face is not dealing with a personal encounter. But the, the clearest one is Proverbs 27:19, where it says in, in the English translations, as in water reflect, uh, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man but in in the hebrew that's in the water face to face so in the hebrew this is the same type of phrase that you end up seeing so here is clearly you're not having a personal encounter with water but you are getting the the, the translation of reflects is a perfect translation because that's what this one is this, this could be translated when a child's uh, uh, when i look in a mirror dimly but then face reflects face. It's talking about not a personal encounter with Christ, but looking at someone clearly versus looking in the mirror dimly. Same thing with the next part, knowing in part versus knowing fully. And some people will make the point to say that then, says, then I shall know, saying that that's some future time. But that's fine. That doesn't take away from it. And it wasn't completed at writing first. It was completed much later. So it, could, it would be a future thing to Paul when he was writing this, because the canon would be closed after him. And so when you look, the canon is what it ends the gift of tongues. And as you said, historically, you end up seeing that happen, 
we, we see that historically that it wasn't normative. These things happen. So what do people do? What, what people do in the way you open your, your show is the way that people argue. So you don't believe miraculous gifts are for today. And I'll be like, no, I don't believe that. Every time someone gets saved, they're regenerated. That's a miracle. That's miraculous. Right. Well, Clearly, they continue. But they're right. not the let, let me throw Let me throw a couple of things out before the break. I, I would tend to disagree with you as far as someone, someone being born again as being a miracle for this reason. A miracle was something that would defy, I think, yeah, laws, the laws of, of, of nature, uh, laws of physics that God set in place. So I think God's working supernaturally all the time, but God working supernaturally all the time isn't miraculous. If you or I you know, had devotions this morning, if God showed us something we didn't see, God works supernaturally. We should expect God to work supernaturally all the time. We should not expect God to work miraculously. Come to 1 Corinthians 13. I appreciate the study you've done, but th- this, may, this may blow your mind. I don't think the interpretation matters. I think we get into kind of, it's kind of a debater's trick with charismatics, and they say, well, yeah, you're going to park on that verse. You know, that, that's all you got. And obviously, it says it right there. I'll read it. Verse 8 from 1 Corinthians 13. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And of course, MacArthur is a cessationist, and he takes that as the eternal state. But I say this for this yeah. reason. There's so much scripture we have that to we don't want to get into a corner. I know you weren't doing it to say, okay, if it isn't the canon, that would not obviously necessarily mean that the sign gets in operation in the entire church age. I'll Correct. just throw this out Correct. before the yeah. break. Paul left Trophimus at my latest six, Second Timothy four twenty. Okay. Clear implications. He didn't he didn't any no longer had the miraculous gift of healing. He also didn't heal, heal Epaphroditus, Philippians two, twenty five to thirty. First uh, Timothy five twenty three. Timothy was not told to expect or seek miraculous healing. So I think even before the canon closed, the, the gifts had the, the gifts had faded away. Certainly, t- I, I think I think they were fading away even before the canon closed. So we don't want to get to a corner to say to, to, to let them think. Okay, I mean the charismatic anyone's taking uh, a position that the miraculous gifts or continuing miracles are continuing throughout the entire church. We don't want them to think that, hey, if if this one verse and my interpretation on this one verse is wrong, then you're right. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's so much scripture to indicate that what clearly was miraculous not only doesn't exist today, but even before the canon closed, it was fading away. It probably wasn't there. But let's go to a break, and I'd like to go through scriptures to list the spiritual gifts and there's an argument I'd like to throw out with you that I think certain certain apologists or polemicists have ignored. I think it's a really powerful argue, argument as far as cessationism. You're listening to the KRP radio show. Guest host Rocco P with special guest Andrew Rappaport of Striving for Eternity Ministries. We'll be back in a moment or two. How many more innocent people? How many more? How many more? What has been the number one cause of unnatural death in history? Democide, or death by government, has killed 290 million people on record. Look it up. Go look it up. In the 20th century, government murdered four times as many people as were killed in all the international and domestic wars combined. USSR, 61,911,000 people killed. Hitler's Germany, nearly 21 million people killed. Japan's imperialism. 
nearly six million people killed. Western colonization killed over 50 million people. Pol Pot's Cambodia, funded by the U.S. government. Two million people killed. China's Communist Party, as many as 76 million people killed between 1949 and 1987. And the list goes on and on. Demand to know why the Department of Homeland Security bought more than 1.6 billion hollow point bullets. How many more people does government have to kill? Enough. Enough. Demand an end to citizen disarmament. As an American. As an American citizen. As a patriot. For your children. Enough of the people laying down and letting government kill them in mass after disarming them as they've done throughout history over and over again. Now is the time. It's time. It's time to realize that when the government takes your guns, people die. It's time to realize the biggest threat to you and your family is government. It's time to recognize. Government is the greatest killer of all time. Demand they show you the word hunting in the Second Amendment. Demand our politicians uphold the Constitution and Bill of Rights as they swore to when they took office. It's time for our leaders to read the Constitution. It's time for our leaders to obey the Constitution. The Constitution. The Constitution. Because a well-regulated militia with 10-round magazines wouldn't last very long. So now you know the most dangerous thing to you and your family in the world is government. Because mass murderers agree, gun control works. You're listening to the KRP Radio Show. Guest host Rocco P. with special guest Andrew Rappaport striving for returning ministries. We're talking about the topic of miracles and miraculous spiritual gifts. The one argument, Andrew, that, that I have that I have not seen too many people really uh, spend a lot of time on is this. As cessationists, we see two different distinct types of gifts that are mentioned, I believe, in the New Testament. We see uh, gifts that are designed to edify the body. Those gifts would then continue until Christ returns. Then we see another set of gifts that we call sign or miraculous gifts. And those gifts had pretty much a distinctly different primary purpose. And that was to authenticate or confirm revelation to come from God, specifically the gospel, that this gospel message was true. And that was used to then authenticate the message then when it was when it was relatively new. If you take the position that all miracles, all mirac- all spiritual gifts are of the same type, then what you're saying in essence is that there is no distinction between sign gifts, miraculous gifts, and the other spiritual gifts. Therefore, you're saying that the miraculous gifts are designed like any other gifts, like teaching, uh, showing mercy, giving. They're designed to edify the body. Therefore, you have to explain then what church is really is God using because no one could point to a church that has biblical tongues no one could point to a church where they have legitimate miraculous healings no one could point to a church obviously where there's apostles we think Ephesians 2:20 foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets so in essence they're trying to they would be saying if they were consistent that the foundation really wasn't laid with the apostles and prophets because they still got prophets around and some would say that they still have apostles. And of course, if you take the position like some charismatics do, that the apostles are gone, well, at that point, I mean, you've already, you've taken a minor, say, 
position. He's saying at least some spiritual gifts are gone. But I think a lot of brethren ignore that, that, hey, if the spiritual gifts are given to, to edify the church, then you're in, a, you're in a very precarious position to then say, got all these gifts, but they haven't been there throughout church history, uh, and they're not functioning now in a biblical way, yet the church is being edified. Makes no sense. Well, and this is sort of Sam Morgan's argument uh, that he makes. And the the thing, though, is they're going to argue, well, you don't need – a lot of charismatics will say that, yes, the apostles – there's no more apostles. There's no more prophets. Now, we do see within these circles, you know, when you have a, a movement that is always based on, you know, this emotionalism and, and mm-hmm. kind of having to – out outdo the, the the next guy type of thing. What you end up with is what you see in what's called the NAR, your Apostolic Reformation, where they do have people that they say are prophets and apostles, and they have a school of prophecy teaching people how to prophesy, um, which is just really interesting. Um, <laughs> the, that's, yeah, that's I don't, see, don't, don't see people taught how to do that in the Bible, do you? No, and that's the whole, that's the whole thing right there. You don't see it consistent with what you see in the scriptures. So you don't see, for example, when when people were sick in the beginning of the the first century, the apostles would heal them. But later on, in even Paul's ministry, he gets to say to Timothy because Timothy's drinking just water and getting dysentery, and Paul's saying. Drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. I mean, don't drink just the water because you're going to get sick. He doesn't heal him. He doesn't say be healed right. for a distance. He doesn't say have the an elder heal you. Right. He says drink some wine for your stomach's sake. Why? Because yeah. get drink something that's going to kill that dysentery. You know. So right. But like I said, I think, I think they, you were, make, they were fading out. Yeah. They were fading out. I, these these miracles were fading out. I agree. I think you can make you can make a very strong argument that the miraculous gifts even ceased before the can had had closed. Uh, I think you can make a pretty good argument when you see the phrase "signs and wonders." If, if you did, uh, if so, someone did, let's say you just pulled that up, you know, just straight straight concordance. You see in the Old and New Testament, signs and wonders were attached to the apostles and Christ. You know, Acts two twenty two, men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by miracles. Wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Acts Acts 2.43, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Acts 4.30, By stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Acts 5.12, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Uh, Stephen being accused of blasphemy in Acts 6.8, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So, uh, again, you see this phrase, this phraseology used in the apostolic context. Tied to the apostles there with Stephen. Uh, no indication that signs and wonders were going to occur all the time. And no, no indication that they were going to occur, really, apart from the apostles. When Paul, as you know, had to defend his apostolic credentials in Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians twelve twelve. He said, "Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance, and signs and wonders and mighty deeds." 
So once again, even within the confines of Scripture, you see really two two distinctions here. I think you see sign gifts, and you see non-sign gifts. It, it's always it's sad when, when certain brethren to take you know, a, some type of charismatic or Pentecostal continuation issue. So we say, and they say, well then, if you don't believe in miracles, you don't believe in spiritual gifts. And it's just it's it's it's, it's so it's it's just such a sad argument because saying, okay, so I deny that what you're saying is a miracle because I'm defining uh, I'm defining miracles based upon the Bible. So then you say, I don't believe in any spiritual gifts. They're all kind. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's so sad. It's so sad. Yeah. And, you know, some of the people, you know, will argue from 1 Corinthians 1-7 that the gifts, the charismatic gifts, must continue until the end times because... In First Corinthians, the church is lacking any charismatic gift. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, the I've heard I that. It's, a, that it's an obvious lexical no argument. Lack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it, a lexical argument. They're, they're reading something into the word that isn't there. Right. Yeah, because a lack requires a need. It's part of the definition of lack. Yeah. And so, the, for the church to lack it, it means that there must be a need. For more revelation, there must be a yeah. need for these gifts, and I'm arguing we don't need these gifts anymore because we have the canon of scripture. So God doesn't continue giving them, and if yeah. He doesn't think there's a need to continue, then they're not lacking. Yeah, not that. That's a good point. There's something else I think that some brethren take cessationist position miss, and that's this: in in the context of the Bible, when a miracle occurred. Even unbelievers and people openly opposed to God would not deny a miracle occurred. You think about Elijah with Ahab. Ahab was very wicked. Could not deny Elijah was performing miracles. Could not deny. You think about uh, uh, when Jesus healed the man uh, born, uh, who the man who was born blind when he received his sight. Okay, they they couldn't. It could not be denied. It just it could not be denied. If you remember in that context, the Pharisees the Pharisees went to him, and well, let me just read here in verse 13. Uh, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received the sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. The others said, how can a man who sinner do such things? And there was division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. They asked him, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. By what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put in the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. <laughs> so, here, again, they couldn't deny that, that the miracle had occurred. Same thing in Acts 3, when Peter heals a lame man. Okay, in Acts 3, it's very clear. Acts 3, verse 1, now Peter and John went up, went up to get to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. 
a certain man leaning from his mother's womb was carried from the late daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms? And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold, I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. So it goes on. They were arrested in Acts 4. And what happens here? Acts 4.15. But when they commanded them to go outside of the council, I mean Peter and John, they conferred among themselves in the Sanhedrin, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So here in the biblical context, you see, even unregenerate people, even people openly opposed to God, couldn't deny when a miracle occurred. Today, we have people making funny noises, saying it's tongues, we have people healed of alleged uh, headaches or whatever, and that that's and when we point this out and say it's it, this isn't miraculous, they respond. I mean, they respond and say we have a problem believing. It's like uh, if this well, was a real miracle, lost people would be tell, would be amazed at this. Well, even and more again, so, uh, there was a, a Justin Peters tells of a, a news agency that went and investigated some of these claims. And actually mm-hmm. did a follow-up with these people that were supposedly healed and found out afterwards it was an emotional thing. They even had someone completely fake it and, and say that they had a yeah. going in. Because what a lot of people don't know with these yeah. things is that people are people come in with a, with a cane and they're walking mm-hmm. with a cane and they're given a wheelchair. And then they're rolled up front and they can walk. Well, they could walk beforehand, but it's like yeah. a miracle, and they get so caught up in the emotion of it. There's people that will they'll say they have different diseases, and if it's something that you can't, you can't see, those are always the ones that get up there. You know, yep. Someone that has a physical ailment that is – they can't walk. They, you know, you'll get someone that's you know, legally blind, can vaguely see. And things like that. But you don't get people that, as you're saying, was a clear miracle. And yeah. the interesting thing is that this, the news reporter pretended to have something and was, quote, unquote, healed of it. And then she said, I lied. I don't have that. <laughs> you know, because he claimed he could see it and he saw it healed from her. You know, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a showmanship. And really what it's become is a showmanship to see, take people's money. For yeah. those that are the televangelists, right? There's obviously there's obviously a diversity of people that want to believe this. Again, you know, you have you have the Wayne Grudem type you know, version that appears to be more intellectual continuationist. Uh, you've got the traditional Pentecostals. You got you got the multi-denominational charismatics. But it comes down to this: is that if you're really going to say that miracles are going on today, it really demeans the Bible. Because you're basically saying you want to equate you know, someone born lame being instantaneously healed with what you have going on. And again, this is like you said with Justin Peter Spin documented many times. I go back to MacArthur's book, The Charismatic, which he rewrote as Charismatic Chaos. Yeah, he did. Many have done the research. You know, lost people as well have looked at this and said, this is just, 
there's not there's just not real healing. Uh, going back to the argument of spiritual gifts again, to me, the scriptures it's very consistent to interpret the scriptures say there's two types of gifts. There's miraculous or sign gifts which have faded away because their purpose was different. Their purpose was to authenticate or confirm new revelation that came from God. And then there's the other gifts that are, that are meant to persist throughout the church age. First Corinthians 12:27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually, and God's appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles. Then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, variety of tongues. Are all apostles? The implication to answer no. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Implied no. Are all workers of miracles? Do all have the gift? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet show you a more excellent way. First Corinthians 13. So this list, First Corinthians 12, clearly mentions miraculous gifts. You know, we'll look at the other list too. But I would point out, if you take this position again, that all the gifts should be distributed throughout the entire church age. You know, you know, forget church history. Within the context of Scripture, where are those tongues in First Corinthians, in Second Corinthians? Yeah, where where are they? In the balance of the New Testament, after Paul wrote First Corinthians, what was that said? I mean, I, I didn't check. What First Corinthians probably written around what sixty A.D., seventy A.D. or so? Yeah. Yeah. Where are they? How about that? Right. Yeah. Where 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 are where are they? You get to Romans twelve. Romans twelve three. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same functions, so we being many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, who, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So very interesting there in Romans 12. One, one sign gift is mentioned, prophecy. What, what's your take on that before I, before I spout out what I think is going on? What do you think? Well, I, you know, a lot of people focus on, on prophecy and don't realize that prophecy has two aspects of it. You know, foretelling and foretelling. What one okay. tells, one is one is proclaiming what's already been written. I mean, so, some would say that when someone stands up at a pulpit and proclaims what God's word says, that's a form of prophecy. But that's but often people will focus just on the aspect of telling the future. Uh, it, it, it's almost like the word evolution that get, that's a bait and switch is mm-hmm. used. You know, they use it for adaptation. And now they prove it by adaptation. Same thing here. If you prove it by the prophecies used, speaking of telling of what's proclaiming what scriptures already been uh, fulfilled, and then turning that into say something else that is is not continuing today, which is telling the future. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. Yeah, other people have drawn a distinction too that yeah, you know, prophecy literally is to claim the mind of God. And, yeah, it did have a predictive element. But, I mean, John the Baptist was a greatest, greatest prophet, didn't do any miracles, but certainly he, uh, he had the ability. You know, he talked about Christ coming, so he did talk about some of the future before it happened. I think, it's, I think you can make the argument here in Romans 12 that 
You don't mention tongues. I think tongues had faded out. And there was still some prophecy because you see that distinction in 1 Corinthians 13 that, you know, they both they would both go away, but the distinction in the Greek as far as, you know, which would go away. But it is interesting that's thrown in there. But again, where where is it after after Romans 12 where are people prophesying? Uh, where, where would it be? Ephesians 4. Teach of us, but teach of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, he says when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first ascended into the lower parts of the earth? He who, descended, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man to the measure of the stage for the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body, joined in it together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Again, you compare that in Ephesians 4 to Ephesians 2.20, that you know, the foundation of the church, yes, you know, the apostles and prophets, there it's saying in 1 Corinthians Ephesians 4, we're given the gifts, why? To build up the body of Christ, one reason in particular, that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Isn't it interesting that we see some of the most extreme and perverse teachings under the sun, under the umbrella of the charismatic movement, and they're saying they're more spiritual. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> you, know, see, you know, something we said earlier, though, okay, I don't know how many times I've sat down with someone and, and walked through the scriptures and, and make arguments, and you'll see them just throw it right out because, as you said earlier, they have an experience. Yeah. And I'll point out, well, that's being intellectually dishonest. And it's it's not as, uh, you know, you're not trying to insult them in any way, but mm-hmm. if you if you can, I mean, I had a I had someone actually walk through and admit that yes, this seems to indicate from the scriptures. This is what it seems to indicate, that gifts, these gifts have ceased. Mm-hmm. I said, so why don't you believe that? Because I know, I know what I experienced, and it's got to be right. Now, now, notice, what it is is I want it to be true. And this is why I say yeah. there's two ways that people interpret the Bible. One is following the rules of interpretation, and the other is what they want the Bible to say, either because of their emotion, their systematic theology, their life experience it's what they wish the Bible said. And you'll see that very often, and it, it really is an intellectual dishonesty when people do that. Because you, you, once you, you see, okay, this is what the Scriptures teach, and, and that, if I look at it intellectually, that's what it teaches, I'm just going to reject it. You know, or they use logical fallacies to convince themselves that this must be right. And that's you know why is it we would we would talk about this why why not just let them believe what they want to believe right fair question to to, to ask and the reason is, is quite simply because they're claiming things are of God 
that are often of themselves of or worse yes. of a demon. I don't yeah. I don't deny that some of this could be demonic. People get all upset, but but when you look at the fact that the things they practice are are very normative and very present in the occult. Yes. You yes. can't deny that this wouldn't couldn't yeah. be the demonic. Yeah, when you get into when you get into the experiential argument, again, you just have to go back to scripture and say, okay, if you're interpreting if you're interpreting your experience like this, then where in the Bible does it say your experience should trump scripture? Again, it's, it's not there. It's just it's, it's just not there. And here's a real thing to to consider. I teach often, as you know, on different world religions. When you end up having anything, the, the watchtower, they say you need them to interpret the scriptures. The Catholic Church, you need them to interpret the scriptures. Well, anytime you put anything above the scripture as the thing to interpret scripture, so if you're going to say that, well, I, I know this is what scripture seems to say, but I had this experience, and my experience means that this this is the proper way to interpret scripture. Now your your experience yeah. is interpreting scripture. Anytime you put something as other than the rules of language to interpret scripture, that becomes greater than scripture because it's the judge over scripture. So when the watchtower says that you you can only know the scriptures from the watchtower, they actually are setting themselves above the word of God. Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a, yes. What you said is very concise and extremely relevant. Obviously, you know, again, there's a range. There's a uh, there's a range. There's a variety of beliefs within the broad Pentecostal charismatic continuationalist movement. But even someone like Rudum, I remember way back, I was at an ETS meeting. This was going, you know, over 20 years ago, and you had you had uh, one brother from another seminary was critiquing Grudem, and he basically said, yeah, number one. How is Wayne interpreting prophecy? And number two, this is a great example, again, as far as using the experiential, the pragmatic movement, the pragmatic arguments on them. Okay? As you know, we discussed before, if you're going to say they're all there, why isn't what you're saying miraculous? Why isn't that what the Bible says miraculous? But the brother said about Groom's position, he goes, how, how does this work, what he's defining as prophecy? Where does it really exist in the church? And this is part of the arrogance of the movement that you, you've kind of hinted at, is that if you take a view, you say, okay, I'm Mr. I'm Mr. Orthodox Protestant, but I'm Pentecostal, I'm charismatic, I believe in, or I'm continuationalist, I don't like those labels. Uh, say, okay, so here I am, and this is what I believe the scriptures teach. It really, really becomes very arrogant, because then you have to say, okay, if this is if this is true, okay. If this is true, apart from what we've discussed in detail as far as interpreting scripture, the purpose of spiritual gifts, and all that, if that's true, where does that exist? Where does that exist? And you sure? I mean, is it is it you know the Vineyard Movement? Uh, is it Sovereign Grace? Is it Couch? I mean, where where does this exist? And again, then then you use the illustration or the testimony of church history again. You go through creeds, you go through confessions, you look at systematic theology. It's so incredibly arrogant to just say, okay, well then, yeah, Grudem or whoever it is, fill in the blank. He's got to figure it out. Well then, where were these churches 50 years ago? Where were these churches that believed, again, as you well know, we talk about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, straight, or 
true teaching, true teaching, orthopraxy, straight or true practice. Where was this belief in practice 50, 100 years ago, 250 years ago? Where was it during the Reformation? Where was it, yeah, yeah, 200 years after the Reformation? It's not there. So it's just so arrogant to say, okay, I've, I've got it. You know, you're you're all wrong, and uh, you know, my little group, you know, these these 13 people or these 12 people, these 20 people, we got it right. <laughs> you know, it's an, it's an interesting thing of. Um, there's a book. I don't know if you if you read it uh, called "Doing Theology in Today's World." It was edited by uh, Woodbridge and Olasky. Uh, no, the interesting thing about it is it goes through different positions theologically. How do how do the feminists do theology? How do you know? How do the charismatics have, have the Pentecostals? And it was very very interesting because the guy that so it's everyone that's from their own position. And the guy that's from the charismatic Pentecostal position is saying, uh, you know, the, the Pentecostal movement started with uh, people that were, you know, first it started with the charismatic movement where people were infiltrating churches and then the Pentecostal movement separating from churches. And I was like, wow, like that that's very telling right there because when you admit to something like that and you, you think about it and say, well, gee, what – what is it you're really saying your movement's about? Yeah. You know, you're, you're saying yeah, you, 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 you shall know them by the fruits. What, what has the fruit been of the Pentecostal and charismatic movements? I mean, more basically heresy, error, and horrible practice and immorality. <laughs> like I said, from, yeah, the, and, from, and the, can, from the inception, can't judge, woman preachers, you can't judge from everything. the inception. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you can't judge everything from the, uh, you know, in the extremes. However, when you look at this, if you're going to be honest, the heresies are normative within these circles. That's the problem. And you get oh, yeah. that even yeah. people that hold that position that, that admit that, yes, there's a lot of problems because theology just doesn't reign well in, in these yeah. circles. It, it goes back to concerning to people. No, I, I, I hear you. It could, the arrogance, yeah, looking about the arrogance again, I heard Michael Brown, I was listening to his radio program one day, and it's funny, I mean, he, he has his doctorate, it was in biblical studies, but he has his doctorate, so I mean, he's educated, and yeah, he's defending the charismatic when he, he, he makes a blanket statement, there's so much there's so much bad and wrong going on, and then he throws in, he says, but at the same time, there's just such incredible love and, and good and things going on, it's like, okay, this is the arrogance again. You're saying on the one hand, the movement is rife with horrible teachings and horrible practices and immorality. But on the other hand, you're saying it's unparalleled in how good it is. You talk about a logical fallacy. But it's just the arrogance again. If you want to presuppose that, you know, whether you have a PhD or not, that your position is right, the facts don't matter. You're just going to believe, okay, here we are. I mean, there's only a tiny amount of people that allegedly have the right doctrine and the right practice. But everyone else around them that has the same label doesn't. It's arrogant. It's terribly arrogant. Well, and, well really, where you know, I go back to that debate with you know Andre, and where he, or not Andre, uh, uh, Ante, and he says, mm-hmm. you have to first believe in the gifts before you can see it in scripture. That to me is very telling. Yeah. To me. 
yeah. that becomes really clear. When you when you have to first accept it, when you say you have to accept it to see it, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I I missed that point. One one thing one thing that stood out with me with him and again. I think I'm not giving him a pass, but I think he was emotionally reacting because JD's arguments were so much more pervasive well, no, is, and 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 deep than his. But one of the things he said that stood out this, to me. But this was this that was in that was in the that was his opening comment. That's the first yeah. two minutes of his opening comment. So it's yeah, not that he was emotional at that point. He he said that that the Bible is a charismatic book, and right, that you that. have yeah. to accept it. And if you won't see this teaching unless you're first baptized in the Spirit, so he he ends up and and he's not alone. Many people do this. It's a begging the question. You first have to accept yeah. the gifts to see the gifts in Scripture. That's yeah. that's illogical. And yeah, if you if your argument has to rely on something that's not logical, then your argument's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh I remember him saying, you know, Bible Bible was charismatic, but one one of the things that jumped out with me and of course the whole movement is, you know, it's to a very large degree based upon emotion. But the thing that jumped out with me with him is that he, he was talking about uh uh when J D challenged them, when he tried to use experiential argument, he goes, Could you could you show me, you know, legitimate uh, legitimate healings and then his argument was, you know, I can't, I can't do the lack of faith, and that's so terribly offensive because, again, he's basically implying then that JD is lost, <laughs> though he wouldn't say. Yeah. It. So here again, I go back to, I go back to the canon, Jesus' ministry, Peter's ministry. When, when a real legitimate miracle occurred, particularly of healing, even the enemies of God couldn't deny it. Yet here we are sitting, okay, here today, and he's saying, we can't. We can't see it or believe it because of our lack of faith. Yeah, it's preposterous. It's absurd. They shouldn't. Yeah, it's just that that this should not be tolerated. <laughs> yeah. Well, any other thoughts, my brother? Appreciate your uh, appreciate your ministry. Appreciate your participation tonight. Anything else? No. I, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's, it's always always a privilege. Always fun. Getting into some of these discussions, and you know, I, the one thing I'd say is, you know, for folks who hold to the same position you and I hold, I would say that when you discuss it with those that don't hold to that, do it in love and charity. Sure. You know, there's there's people like myself who are in that involved in that movement, and you're wrong, but you don't know it because you don't know anything right. else. And and those who are maybe disagreeing with us and really upset and getting very, if you're getting emotional. Um, I just caution you to step back, take take a breather, think about what we're saying, and just ask: Am I making emotional arguments or am I making logical arguments? It's an important thing to differentiate. Yeah, and if scripture, if scripture is truly the final authority, are you willing to test what you believe as well as practice by the canon or not? Are you going to do that? And, and I agree yeah. with you with the love. I mean, I I said stuff tonight. It, yeah, it's two people having a discussion, though. Yeah, it's it's in a broadcast. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't treat someone in a charismatic church like I would, aren't they? Yeah, like I would a leader. I, I would I I would never do that. <laughs> yeah, I would I'd be a little bit stronger with someone who understands yeah. the issues and yeah. is teaching. You know, the, the, what what got me with someone like Ante was when when he made that statement before the debate. 
um, or, or it might have been during the first break. Mm-hmm. Um, it told me he understood the issues. The fact that he understood the issues means you're going to be held more accountable because you know what the argument is. And yeah, I mean, I'm 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 going to be a little bit stronger with him as I was privately after that debate, and uh, you know, he, yeah. he, where, he, where it was also he in his North very Carolina? first time ever debating. Uh, I'm not sure where he's in North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and to be fair to him, that was the first time he ever did a formal debate against someone who was in a debate club. You know, so it, it, in that sense alone. It was a little unfair. Yeah. Um, well, you, 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 you were gracious in that. Yeah. You, know, you made you made it clear at the end that you wanted to thank both people for taking the time. I mean, yeah, he traveled there, and so you definitely you definitely gave him credit for being able to, uh, yeah, to publicly put himself out there and defend that, defend himself in the debate. I, I even get, I, I even tried to give him a softball question. The first question I asked him was from his wife. She handed me that question, so I figured, okay, I'll, I'll give a softball, and he was stuttering over over that. I'm like, well, okay, <laughs> it's only getting worse from here than for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. God, God knows his hearts. So we know, you know, those, you know, too much is given, much is required. So I mean, when someone is positioning himself as a preacher, teacher, elder, and they're promulgating this, I mean, obviously, uh, yeah, they shouldn't feel comfortable. Because I think a lot of them know, hey, yeah, they just they can't defend it. They really can't. Yeah, it's like the it's like the, it's like the idiocy of Michael Brown saying, yeah, there's all these horrible problems in the charismatic movement, but there's also at the same time incredibly good things going on. It's the best movement in the world. It's absurd. It makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks thanks for having me, and uh, keep up the good work that you're doing down there. I know you, you left the great state of New Jersey uh, <laughs> because you wanted to be able to afford to live and feed yourself, but uh, you know. Yeah, I also don't miss the winters. You have uh, you have any events coming up you'd like to uh, you'd like to uh, talk about as far as the ministry? Anything coming up? Uh, we're we're doing some planning for some uh, some of our yearly conferences. We haven't given the dates and all just because we're we're kind of restructuring some of them how we want to do them do them a little bit differently um and so we're, we're going to probably come out with those the end of the you know probably next month we'll announce those but yeah i mean right now for most of the focus has been trying to get the the book from the publisher and and uh get that out okay so you got your own website and you got you have a you have a pretty robust uh presence on facebook too right yeah we have we have uh the striving fraternity group and, uh, and where people can discuss things, and then we have the ministry page, Striving for Training Ministries, uh, that uh, where we kind of it's more more one directional on the page. It's not as well set up for you know back and forth uh, as as much or people posting questions. We and you got a lot you know, of teaching on our, YouTube, our, right? You know that we offer. Watch the YouTube page, the YouTube channel, and watch it for free. Yeah, and that's all awesome. that's there on YouTube. Hundreds of, awesome. of classes. Well, thank you, my brother. Hopefully, uh, we'll we'll speak again soon. All right. Thanks a lot. God bless. You've listened to the KRP Radio Show with Rocco P. Special guest Andrew Rappaport. Thank you for listening. 
Uh, thank you again, Pudgley Miller, for the use of your platform on the KIRP radio show. KIRP radio!